Hello and welcome again to Peach Pog. I know you're shocked. We're here yet again. We're kind of shocked about it too. And today we have yet another Peach Pog. Not really a conversation. It's more of a policy wonk out, which I love and hopefully you will as well. So, uh, Kyle, who did you talk to? So I talked to Jason O'Rook. He is the Senior Director of Public Policy and Federal Affairs at the Georgia Chamber of Commerce. And we did a deep dive on healthcare. Uh, particularly given that the American Health Care Act passed the House uh, on Thursday of last week, or it'll actually be almost two weeks by the time that you're listening to this. Um, so we took a deep dive into, into what that bill does, into what the implications of that bill are in Georgia. And then uh, because Jason is a, a health care expert, um, he works on healthcare and education policy at the Georgia Chamber. Uh, we kind of backed it out a little bit to talk about Healthcare issues related to Georgia businesses, and uh, you know, take a peek at some of his expertise in working with employers and, and what healthcare policy means to them. So uh, it's a really wonky conversation. Uh, we close it out with a little bit of politics. So if you're thinking, "Oh, I came here for the politics," uh, hang in there till the end. It'll be there for you. Um, but I think we had a good talk about uh, you know a really important issue um, and one that I think a lot of people in Georgia are concerned about. Yeah, I really like this conversation for like three main reasons. One, he's someone that's engaged us on Twitter, and I don't pay attention to Twitter really, but like I enjoy the fact that like slowly but surely all the people we kind of like mess with on Twitter are coming onto our show. Uh, that's really fun. Uh, two. Uh, the selfish reason that I've listened to this and uh, he calls me out on something and, you know, debates something that rightfully I point so. out. Rightfully Okay, you can say rightfully so. But <laughs> I just love the fact that, like, someone's actually listening to our show who's smart and, like, has an opinion about the things we've said. This is this excites me. Um, and then third, and mo- fi- by far most importantly, um, this is a really, like, wonky conversation. It's really in-depth in policy and you guys have disagreements and it's not just sort of a backslapping fest of, you know, oh yeah, yeah, that's smart and that's what we should be doing like it's real you know there's some real back and forth there i think that's uh really valuable and it's good to have that perspective on here and you know hear what uh folks that align themselves a little bit more at the chamber think um and i think it was a informative conversation and you know a productive debate and i i really enjoyed the conversation and hope we get to do more stuff like this and hope our listeners like it well, we won't delay uh, too much longer. I should note, as I always do, particularly when I talk about healthcare issues, I work in healthcare policy in my day job. Um, but in this interview and, and in the show generally, I'm not speaking for my employer. Um, I'm just speaking for me. Um, so without further ado, here is me and Jason wonking out on a little healthcare. Jason, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Kyle. Happy to join you. Happy to be part of the show. Um, so on today's special, we are going to talk solely about healthcare. Um, if you've been paying attention to the news this week, it, it probably would have been impossible to miss that the congressional health reform proposal passed the House of Representatives, and it's something that Congress has been trying to do since the beginning of the year, and really since Trump was inaugurated at the White House. Um, so we're going to talk a little bit about the American Health Care Act, what the implications of that bill are as that moves out of the House and potentially moves over to the Senate, or at least the Senate is going to consider something. And then um, based on Jason's work, we're going to talk a little bit about health policy in Georgia, what what employers are looking for, and, and, and how that policy really gets implemented on the ground. Um, 
so we're going to dig into that for the second part of this conversation. Um, so we'll we'll start with just a summary of the American Healthcare Act. Um, so this passed the House of Representatives on Thursday. It it barely passed on a party line vote with 217 Republicans in favor of it. Um, this was a proposal that has been on the table for a relatively short period of time when you consider major health policy reforms. Um, but the House started debating it in early, I think, at the, the end of February, beginning of March, and then they got through a bill uh, here at the very beginning of May. Um, so to just sort of set the table here, the American Health Care Act starts by trying to make some pretty significant reforms to the Affordable Care Act, which is Obamacare. Um, and if you're not familiar with it, Obamacare essentially increases access to health insurance in two different ways. It does it through an expansion of the Medicaid program, which is health insurance for low-income people, and it does it through providing tax credits to uh, sort of lower and moderate-income people to help them purchase health insurance on these newly established marketplaces, which is basically Amazon for health insurance, um, that were established when the ACA passed um, in 2010. So what the American Healthcare Act does, the Republican proposal, is it makes some pretty significant changes to the Medicaid program. It basically slowly unwinds the Medicaid expansion, uh, particularly related to Georgia. It would not allow Georgia to accept the Medicaid expansion that they haven't taken thus far. And then for states that did take that expansion, um, people who don't maintain continuous coverage on Medicaid would not be eligible to re-enroll in that expansion population. And then sort of broadly on the marketplace side, it also lowers the value of the premium tax credits for some people that get those. Um, it, it changes the structure from being a structure based on how much income you have to your age. Um, and the effect of that, the short version of the effect of that is that it is going to essentially lower those tax credits for, for older people and make them a little more valuable for younger people. So that's just kind of the broad impact. Jason, what is what was your thought as this bill passed? We'll get into some of the, the more wonky details, but just sort of overall, what do you think about some of the pluses and minuses of this proposal? So speaking specifically from a Georgia perspective, um, it, you know, it definitely closes out the conversation on Medicaid expansion. Um, you know, for a new population. So that's something that we had worked on from the chamber's side. Um, and a lot of, uh, you know, interest groups in Georgia, the hospitals, the doctors, uh, the, all the healthcare providers were interested in seeing some kind of fix to this uninsured population that's in the coverage gap. So that piece, um, you know, changes the, the ball game for what could be possible in Georgia. The premium tax credits, that's, it's an, it, the, one of the more interesting pieces of it that I thought when I saw that was that, you know, traditionally uh, both parties have relied on older voters as sort of their base. And a lot of policies have been designed to get to capture uh, older voters politically. So you think about the way the tax credits are designed and, you know, the fact that they're now, uh, the focus of the tax credits is now more so to uh, be a positive thing for younger citizens, which by extension is younger voters, is an interesting development sort of in our policy making process. Um, 
you know, I think that speaks partially to the fact that the millennial generation is now the largest uh, population demographic in America. So we have this baby boomer demographic that's aging out. Um, the Generation X that's sort of in the middle is a smaller number of people. So it, it's a little bit of uh, you know recognition that both parties are now seeing the voting block of the millennial generation, and they're actually designing some policies that are specifically for that block through this tax credit policy that gives them, you know, more, more affordable insurance uh, via these tax credits. And I, I think the other piece that kind of goes into that, and, and this was a point that uh, HHS secretary and former Georgia Congressman Tom Price made on Fox and Friends, uh, he was asked about the structure of these tax credits and the structure of a, a provision known as age rating, which is uh, in under the Affordable Care Act, you could only charge older people three times the amount that you charge younger people. The American Health Care Act, the Republican proposal, uh, increases that difference to five to one. Um, so, so it does result in a pretty significant price increase for elderly people, and it does lower the cost of health insurance for younger people. One of the the big criticisms of the Affordable Care Act, and, and this was something that I think even proponents of the law worried about, was the health insurance marketplaces that were established, they were attracting older and sicker enrollees because those were the people that value health insurance the most. And they got, if they particularly if they were lower income, they got larger tax credits and they, um, and they could afford premiums that way. To balance out the risk in that market, um, the Affordable Care Act really needed to attract more younger people who on average are healthier and who on average are going to consume less health care in that individual market risk pool. Um, and so by adjusting these credits for age and then uh, changing the age rating policy, it is going to make health insurance more affordable for that group. And it does lower uh, sort of the average age of the person who's going to be involved in that market. Um which is intended to help balance out and make that market stronger. But I think there's a lot of other things going on in this bill that, that work in the opposite direction from that. Yeah. And to that point, um, you know, one of the most popular provisions that is kept in the uh, AHCA is the uh, allowing people to stay on their parents' insurance till 26. And I've seen some of the analysis from, you know, different perspectives and some of the people who were, on the original design of the ACA, you know, said that allowing people to stay on their parents' insurance till 26 may have contributed to a lack of younger, healthier people in the marketplace. Um, and so it's a, it's a provision that people like and is very popular, but, you know, that sort of has a, a piece of it is leading to um, some of the problems that they were, they were created within the exchange marketplace. Um, so to get into a little bit of the broader impacts as the analysis has come out on this bill, um, before we do that, it's important to note that the CBO, the Congressional Budget Office, which is sort of the congressional scorekeeper, scored an earlier version of this bill. It was the bill that they were considering at the end of March that ultimately did not pass the House. Um, what Republicans in the House did for the version that passed this last week is they did not wait for an updated CBO score. Um, and I think that most of the estimates are going to be close. Um, 
because the the changes that were made between the end of March and and now I don't think are are major, uh, particularly as it relates to the coverage numbers. I, I do think the deficit number could change a little bit. Um, but it's important to note that this is a somewhat dated CBO score and that this analysis could change uh, when CBO uh, updates their analysis for what actually passed the House. Uh, but CBO noted on health coverage that in 2018, 14 million fewer people would have health insurance, and that by 2026, this would increase to 24 million people. Um, they also note that it reduces the deficit by $150 billion, uh, which is important in the context of the legislative strategy that Republicans are using on this. Um, and then on health insurance premiums, it notes that the average premium in the individual market in what is left of these Affordable Care Act markets is is expected to decrease by 10% in the long run. And this is primarily due to a change in the composition of people who have health insurance. This is that effect of younger people being more likely to get into a market like this when they can buy uh, cheaper health insurance and older people likely being priced out of this market, especially if they have a pre-existing condition. Yeah, that's an interesting. Um, it's one of the one of the uh, one of the positive things that Republicans can talk about here is that it it does reduce the deficit and it does lead to an eventual decrease in premiums. Um, notwithstanding the number of people who are covered, um, but those are the positives that you'll see Republicans point to. Uh, the the challenge here, I think, and and a lot of the criticism of this bill has come around these coverage numbers. Um, it. I don't. I haven't seen a lot of defense of of the coverage numbers by Republicans or people on the right. I I think it they're making the case that this is in a sense allowing people to have the freedom to choose whether or not to have health insurance. But I I think when you look at the composition of people who actually are are sort of choosing or or I think not having much of a choice to not have health insurance, this is gonna impact a group of people who is sicker on average, who is more expensive on average. Um, and I, I think this is a major shortcoming of this bill that a lot of people have pointed out. I mean, the, the, the most vociferous criticism of it is that it's kicking these people off, off of this health insurance. But I think even if you look at it in a more neutral way, cutting people who have significant health needs off of health insurance, um, I think is going to have an effect throughout the healthcare market, particularly for providers, um, that I don't think is positive in this instance. Yeah, and I'm likewise not seeing a lot of defense from Republicans around how the reduction in coverage of the number of people is is a positive. Um, what you're mostly seeing is uh, doubting the 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 numbers that CBO is putting out, and you'll see, you know. A lot of uh, a lot of talking heads say that well, you know, CBO estimated a certain number of people would enroll under the ACA, and that didn't come true. So how can we possibly trust CBO on on this score? So it's sort of the the doubting of experts is the defense at this point. Um, and I you know I have a lot of trust in economists and a lot of trust in CBO. Um, there's some extremely talented people who do their best to make these numbers accurate. Um, anytime you're predicting one-sixth of the U.S. economy and what the effects will be 10 years from now, there's a chance you can get it wrong. It's a huge number, and we're talking about 
dynamic economies that that change based on the way the the way the broader economy is working and you know advancements in technology unforeseen things like the 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 technology glitches on the rollout of the ACA there are all these kinds of things that that factor into those eventual numbers you know there there have been insurance companies over the last year or two who have decided to, to withdraw from the exchanges in different states all those things factor into what the CBO's original predictions were and what they look like now. So that's what you're seeing mostly from the Republican side on, you know, rather than trying to defend uh, the number of people who would lose coverage, it's more focused on, uh, you know, the, the idea that, well, CBO might be wrong. They don't really know. The, the other piece of this that I think does bring it back to a Georgia level is there are major changes in the Medicaid program, and these are changes that I think were somewhat overlooked in the discussion of this bill in the last week because those provisions largely didn't change between the introduction of this bill and um, in its passage. So what it does to Medicaid, in addition to sort of unrolling the Medicaid expansion, um, which would then never be implemented in Georgia. Um, it also converts Medicaid to a new finance structure, which is called a per capita cap. And essentially what it does is it gives you a per person amount. Uh, the, the federal government pays the state, in this case, the state of Georgia, a per person amount based on uh, what people in different eligibility groups in Medicaid cost in 2016. Um, and then over time, this amount grows at a rate that is expected to be slower than the amount of money needed to provide the same amount of health care to this group that's in Medicaid. In, in sum, the CBO estimates that this provision of converting Medicaid from what is essentially an entitlement program now to a per capita cap or a block grant at a state option um, is going to cut Medicaid spending at the federal level by $839 billion over 10 years. Um, it's estimated that that cut in Georgia is going to be $4 billion in 10 years. And it, it brings out some really important questions from my perspective. How does Georgia react to what amounts to a really significant cut in the Medicaid program? And particularly as it relates to you know the problems that Georgia has had with hospitals that have closed in recent years, the impact of this seemingly would be that Georgia is going to have to trim their Medicaid spending. And even Governor Deal noted in his State of the State last year that um, they were working towards increasing reimbursement rates in the Medicaid program, basically spending more money through the Medicaid program to both support those providers that are struggling and increase access to care for people in the program. Um, so I know you, you've paid attention to Medicaid a lot on the state level. What do you think the impact of this per capita cap would be and what would Georgia do in response? So I think regardless of what happens, um, you're likely to see some changes in the Medicaid program in Georgia. Um, after the, the first round when the, when the American Health Care Act um, didn't pass, um, there were some quotes from Governor Deal um, in the AJC about waivers. And a lot of people inside the industry and inside the, you know, political, inside baseball circles thought that meant some type of 1115 or 1332 Medicaid expansion waiver. Um, and after those initial quotes, 
um, they kind of walked that back and, and said, no, you know, waiver is a very broad term. Um, you can use the term waiver as a, as a euphemism for Medicaid expansion, but you can also do 1115 waivers within the existing Medicaid program that, that finds, you know, different tweaks, different ways to uh, have some cost savings built into it. One of the things that was in um, some of the plans that some of the recommendations that the, the, the Georgia Chamber put out um, and, and some other conservative states have talked about is, is putting work requirements on Medicaid eligibility for childless adults. And that's a pretty popular conservative idea that if you're a, an able-bodied childless adult without dependents, that you should be engaging either in work or in job-seeking activity in order to be eligible for these types of benefits. Um, there's definitely room for debate on whether or not these are effective programs. And if the cost of administering the programs pays for the, the, the gains. But from a philosophical standpoint, that's a really appealing argument for a lot of Republicans and a lot of conservative voters is that, you know, we shouldn't be giving people something for free if they're not willing to work for it. Now, obviously, when you start talking about families, people with kids, all those types of things, um, you know, the, the conversation changes. But several states are looking at, several Republican states specifically are looking at that within their expansion population and even when they're within their existing populations as well as what are these small areas where we can find cost savings that either would allow us to keep our budget stable or, you know, figure out some way to increase reimbursement rates um, within the existing program. So I, I think this is something that uh, advocates on the left and, and, and I feel this way having, you know, looked at the impact of some of these policies, I feel like work requirements are not a very positive direction for the state to go. Um, it, in, in my mind, first of all, most Medicaid recipients are working. Um, it, it, it's not true that, that a bunch of them aren't. And so there, there are relatively few that would be impacted by this proposal. And then a lot of them that aren't working aren't working for reasons related to disability or, or other things related to health status. Um, and the states that have pursued these, they have uh, wanted to do certain carve-outs or exemptions for people who probably should not be working or, or have a good reason not to work. Um, I am concerned about like the administrative complexity of that. Medicaid is a program that doesn't require in-person interviews to qualify in the way that some other safety net programs do. Um, and so managing the, you know, whether or not you qualify for an exemption, whether or not you, you know, should qualify and that exemption is not being delivered to you correctly. I think that's an administrative burden that um, I think is, would be difficult for the state to take on. Um, the other issue as you consider work requirements is that if in the event the American Health Care Act passes or uh, if for whatever other reason Medicaid is not expanded to um, all people that earn uh, less than 138% of the poverty line, the people that are in, Medi in, in Georgia's Medicaid program, there aren't a lot of, I mean, there's no coverage for childless adults right now. And the coverage for even working parents is, is relatively limited. The current eligibility level in Georgia's Medicaid is only if you make more than $7,500 a year, you're not going to qualify for Medicaid. 
Um, the there are higher eligibility levels. The program is more generous to pregnant women. Um, you can make up to forty five thousand dollars a year and qualify for Medicaid um, while you're pregnant. And then for children in families that make up to fifty thousand dollars a year, you can qualify for either the Medicaid program or the separate children's health insurance program. Um, and so I'm not sure. I would be very hesitant to. Um, you know, think that work requirements are, are, a, are a valuable policy for Georgia to pursue. Yeah, it's an interesting debate. Um, I know Kentucky is also pursuing some similar programs under their um, existing plan. Um, you know, some of the other Republican states in the past have considered this type of, you know, work requirement or other mandates on top uh, to, to, as a requirement for people who want to ex- uh, gain Medicaid coverage. In the past, under the Obama administration, it was a non-starter. There, there would never be an approval from HHS and CMS for that type of waiver. Um, what you're seeing now under Secretary Price and CMS Administrator Seema Verma um, is that they've said, you know, bring us your ideas. Sh- show us something new that nobody's ever done before. So I think there's a lot of interest on it. And to the point, your your point is fair that it, it may be that the administrative cost is not worth the savings. Georgia does have right now, in a slow rollout, a work requirements or job seeking behavior job seeking program requirements for SNAP benefits for the food stamp program. So it was piloted in a, in I think five counties um, last year. They've just expanded it to like forty five or fifty counties this year, including most of the almost every large metro area except for Fulton County. Um, Fulton County is going to be the last one to, to roll into the program because it's the biggest. Um, but so there, there's, a, there's a piece that's already sort of being built right now in Georgia to ask those same questions for SNAP beneficiaries. So in a lot of cases, um, your SNAP beneficiaries are going to be the same people as your uh, Medicaid eligible. So it's it's a you know, I think that as the state is pursuing that, um, we'll learn a lot and we'll see if, if the juice is worth the squeeze. The other thing that I think sort of illuminates this Medicaid conversation is potentially different ideas about what the Medicaid program itself actually should be. Um, so the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, really wants to turn Medicaid into a health insurance program, really a public health insurance program for low and lower middle income people, particularly when you combine um, that with the coverage that exists under the children's health insurance program, low and lower middle income families really can find coverage in the Medicaid program. Um, I think, and I'd be interested in your take on this, I think conservatives sort of have a different idea about what that safety net program should look like and, and and may value less the idea that Medicaid is sort of a public middle-class program. Do you have any thoughts on that? No, I think that hits the nail on the head. Um, when you talk to congressional staff on the Republican side and you talk to, you know, the, the Republican Congress members who truly understand healthcare, um, it's just a difference of ideology of what the safety net is supposed to look like. They, they see Medicaid as a program designed to help the neediest of the needy, the people who have absolutely no other way to, to gain health coverage. 
they'll point to uh, you know charity care, private hospitals and churches that are that are willing to step in and provide this type of care as as solutions that are preferable to um, a federal you know program or a federal state program like Medicaid. So there is a philosophical discussion, um, you know, on the Republican side that do we want government to be providing this many things? And I think your point is, is absolutely right, that Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act has grown into a, you know, a larger program that provides insurance to a lot more than just the very, very poor. Um, that also is, you know, has been along the same time that health insurance has become a lot more expensive. So 10 years ago, and especially 20 years ago, for the middle class and the lower middle class individuals, they, they had options to buy private health insurance or to gain it through their employer. Um, that's increasingly more difficult now for the low income and the, and the really the, the medium to low income population. So as the Affordable Care Act was implemented, you know, that was part of the design was to step in where those gaps existed. So as we, you know, if this, if this becomes law and the Medicaid program is, is reduced and rolled back, the options you're going to see are, you know, are states going to step up and play a bigger role in this? Um, are private and charity institutions going to step up and, and, and cover those gaps? Or are we going to just have fewer people that have any form of health insurance and, you know, their, their options become either going without or relying on an emergency department at their local hospital to be their primary care physician, which is the most expensive and least effective option for delivering health care. And I know we've talked a little bit in the past about uh, this regulation from the 1980s, uh, which um, basically requires hospitals to provide emergency treatment. It is sort of the the very bare bottom of the safety net um, for treatment. You want to talk a little bit about that and, and how you think that that impacts health insurance markets? Yeah, so it was funny. A couple weeks ago when um, you and Luke were talking about this, I was trying to scream through my iPhone to, to, to make a point. Um, <laughs> so Luke was saying that, you know, Lyndon Johnson and, and all the great society programs were, you know, sort of the last big, last big health policy change up until the Affordable Care Act. And one point that I think everyone who works in health policy knows, but it doesn't get as much recognition, is the uh, 1980s law that, that Ronald Reagan signed that's EMT-ALA. It's an acronym for a much longer um, name. But it essentially says that if you show up to an emergency room and you need care, that the emergency, that the hospital has to provide it to you if they accept Medicare and Medicaid. So, you know, if a, if a hospital chooses to accept federal dollars um, to cover uncompensated care, it is incumbent upon them to treat patients and stabilize them when they show up. Over time, um, stabilize has become a, a, a broader term, and essentially the safety net hospitals, so your large uh, urban hospitals like Grady in Atlanta, Savannah Memorial, um, Phoebe Putney in Albany, which isn't as a public hospital, but provides the same level of care, you know, they take on this indigent care and uncompensated care as a cost of doing business. Um, and it, it's something that 
you can't understate how much that has driven up the overall cost of, of health care for everyone. You know, this coverage has to be paid for by someone. So what hospitals typically end up doing is they, they take that and they say, okay, here's some red ink on our balance sheet. We have to figure out a way to make up those costs somewhere. Most often, it ends up being, well, let's work with our insurance companies that we negotiate prices with. They show them, okay, here's all this red ink on our balance sheets. Like, you know, we can't negotiate rates any lower. Insurance companies go back to employers and say, okay, you know, we've got to make up the difference. We're going to charge more on the employer premium side. We're going to charge more in, in, in co-pays. Um, some way or another, we have to make these numbers work. So, you know, the Affordable Care Act specifically in the last few years has become the boogeyman for all the problems in increasing costs in healthcare. But a lot of these costs really can be um, dated back to this law from the 80s that requires hospitals to treat people. And as I was look, reading, you know, some of the history of the adoption of the law, there's, there is actually, was, it stems from a 1980s uh, episode of 60 Minutes about uh, the large hospital in Dallas that was experiencing what they were calling patient dumping. And, you know, the, the for-profit hospitals around the Dallas area were sending the most expensive cases of people who didn't have any way to pay to the, to the one hospital who was, you know, going to treat them no matter what. And it led to just some terrible stories and some terrible outcomes um, that nobody wanted. So, you know, we have this system right now where hospitals are going to treat people. And unless we're willing to say that, you know, we're going to let people die outside in the parking lot of the emergency room, and most of, you know, modern American society is not willing to allow that, then we've got to be honest about, who is paying for these costs and how they're eventually getting passed down. Um, you know, we don't want, we don't want pregnant mothers birthing babies in the, in the parking lot of the hospital because the hospital won't let them come in because they don't have insurance. That's an, that option is not something that, you know, even the most conservative Tea Party Republican is going to say that's something that we want to see. And I think that does pose a little bit of a challenge to a lot of the discussion around trying to make healthcare a more free market item or free market good. Um, because yeah, somebody does have to pay those costs. And if you, you know, in other, in other sort of free market situations, if I, you know, want a TV, but TVs are very expensive. I just, if I don't have enough money to buy a TV, I just can't buy a TV. Um, and, health insurance, you know, when it, when you get to an emergency situation, uh, it just really doesn't work that way. Or at least, you know, I would imagine at least, you know, 90% of the country believes it should not work that way. Um, but it also illustrates, I think it gets to the core of this Medicaid issue, especially as it relates to rural health providers in Georgia. Um, because make Medicaid expansion proponents argue this, and I've talked about this on the show before that, You've had a, a series of hospitals in rural areas in Georgia that have closed in recent years. There was another one that just closed in the last couple of weeks in Jenkins County. A lot of the the complaint about these hospitals trying to make their finances work is that they just they see a lot of uninsured patients or underinsured patients and they don't get fully reimbursed for the care that they provide. 
Um, and Medicaid expansion is one potential solution for filling that gap by getting at least some form of insurance to all of these people who are uninsured and, and potentially allowing them to at least provide some payment to the hospital when they have to show up and, and get services. Um, I think critics of this note that the reimbursement rates are pretty low and, and it's probably not a silver bullet solution for these hospitals. Um, but, you know, there's been other other efforts in the state legislature in recent years to try to find, you know, smaller solutions to support these rural hospitals. What do you think about what the legislature has worked on um, and what more they can do in this current environment to, you know, try to keep these hospitals, help these hospitals keep their doors open? Yeah, so a couple things to note here. Um, one is that you, when you, you talk to, you know, a lot of Republicans and specifically Republicans who aren't as savvy on, you know, the way that healthcare works, they'll, they'll point out that, that med- the Medicaid reimbursement rates are around 75 cents on the dollar to what the actual cost of care is. So providers, you know, take on Medicaid patients partially because doctors are in the business of helping people. There's the Hippocratic Oath side of things that they want to treat sick people. And for the most part, doctors don't like seeing, um, you know, sick people go untreated with terrible, terrible illnesses. So hospitals sort of take this on as, as part of their mission. Um, so you'll hear people, you'll hear conservatives point out, well, Medicaid only pays 75 cents on the dollar. Why would any hospital want to expand Medicaid so that they have more people only paying 75 cents on the dollar? Wouldn't that mean that that would make the rural healthcare problems worse. Well, that would be true, except for the fact that the population who would be covered under Medicaid expansion is currently paying zero cents on the dollar to the hospital. The hospitals are taking it on as a complete loss. So, yes, it, it's not a you know it's not a money making proposition to to be a hospital with a heavy Medicaid uh, you know population, but it is better than what they're getting right now because right now they're not getting anything. They're taking on the full cost of care and either passing it back on to um, their, those, the customers who have private insurance or just paying in cash. Um, and so that's just a problem that, that is not, you know, there's not a good answer to it right now. In the, in the metro Atlanta area hospitals that have a uh, patient mix that's much higher with people with, with good insurance or they can pay out of pocket, they can easily make up for those costs, um, the, the losses from accepting Medicaid. In the rural hospitals around the state, typically it's, it's a less wealthy population, it's an older population, um, it's a less healthy population. So combining that with the uncompensated care, it just really presents a, a tremendous challenge that the legislature is going to have to figure out. So there, there have been a couple proposals on this. Um, the last two years, um, we had we, the state adopted a tax credit for rural hospitals that are considered um, under stress. So the state Department of Community Affairs came up with a list in consultation with some of the hospital associations to say, you know, these are the rural hospitals that are most in danger of closing. And there's a tax credit that allows um, private individuals and corporations to donate a, uh, you know, basically make a donation to 
this rural hospital tax credit fund to try to stem the bleeding on this. Um, it hasn't, it wasn't super successful in its first year of operation. So the legislature went back and made it a little more generous. Um, the first year it was a 75% tax credit. So there was a, an intentional level of altruism that was built into the bill to say, you know, corporations shouldn't just do this purely for the tax credit. They should do it because they care. Um, and, and, you know, I think that makes sense, but the, the, the tax credit wasn't taken advantage of in the way that I think a lot of legislatures wanted it to. So they went back this year and expanded it to make it a little more generous from the, from a corporate side. Um, but anyone you talk to, even the sponsors of the bill will say, you know, this is truly a band aid on a gunshot wound. It's, 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 it's good. It's something that might help some hospitals in the short term um, on some really, you know, burning platform issues they have as far as funding facilities or, you know, buying new equipment, but it, it absolutely doesn't solve the long-term problems that are, you know, systemic in how the care is delivered and how it's paid for. So there's, there's, you know, conversations around other ideas around moving towards more of a concierge care model where people just pay monthly, uh, you know, monthly fees to, access a network of doctors. Um, there's conversations around telemedicine. It's possible that in a lot of these counties around the state that have traditionally had a, you know, a 30 bed hospital, but 25 of those beds have gone empty for the last decade that, you know, do they really need to have this high overhead, um, and, and, and running a full scale, you know, hospital. So there's conversations around consolidation, hub and spoke models. Um, there's an interesting model that, that, happened in North Georgia in, actually in Speaker David Ralston's district, where the local hospital closed and they received a waiver to reopen as just an emergency department with two beds. And they said, you know, we don't need to be a full service hospital because we can't make those numbers work. So the state allowed them to waive some of the rules to say, all right, we know that this community needs to have an emergency room but we don't need to have a full-scale hospital. We have several other options nearby. If you need specialty care, you're going to have to drive a little bit further. It might be 30 minutes, it might be an hour, um, but we do have the ability to you know, take care of the emergencies as they come in. Combining that with a better uh, helicopter airlift system is a, you know, an interesting solution that's, that's really more just logistical and practical. It's outside of this health policy discussion as far as, you know, funding, uh, you know, funding plans and, and, and the Medicaid program. Um, there's just some, you know, different options around our, how can we just better deliver health care uh, without changing the insurance structure. And uh, this is actually one of my biggest frustrations with how health policy has been handled at the state level in the last few years um we've really known about this this closing hospital issue for for a little while now and um governor deal has maintained that accepting the medicaid expansion would be too expensive um you know particularly for for the state when they have to kick in their share of the medicaid expansion later on the other frustration related to this is the debate over the american health care act at the congressional level is not some big philosophical shift 
that might present other kinds of solutions to these rural healthcare issues. It does sort of just kind of weaken or water down what's going on in the ACA. Um, but it's really difficult for the state to move forward when they don't know what federal policy is going to be, particularly if there's going to be big changes around the Medicaid program. And what I think that this issue requires is a really you know, full campaign from the state legislature to make the case that this is an important problem the state needs to solve, and it's probably going to involve raising revenue in some way. Um, because the only other way is to pull from other responsibilities the state has, and, and there's not a lot of you know fat or waste to really be pulled from. Now, raising revenue in the state politically has been a big challenge. The fight over the transportation bill back in 2014 was massive, and there were a lot of people who opposed it who called it the largest tax increase in state history. Um, Georgia has not reformed their education funding formula since the 1980s. And at least from what I know about it, a couple of commissions have taken a look over time and they kind of come to the conclusion that, well, part of what you need is more money. The most recent uh, commission suggested that the first thing the state should do is close what's known as the austerity gap, uh, which was partially the result of kind of a hangover of the Great Recession and and lower state funding. Um, But I do think that to address this issue, you got to find money somewhere. And the Medicaid expansion was a good deal. Uh, it may be off the table. Hopefully it's not. Um, but if, you know, short of that, I do think the legislature, and, and maybe this gets into the next governor's race, they just got to find a way to make the case that this is a really important problem to solve. And I just, I've been frustrated by their inability to do that at this point. Yeah, and I share your frustration, Um you know, especially when you're talking about the, the generous match rates from the Medicaid expansion option. And there, I think there's, you know, competing interests here, right, if you're a Republican state legislator. So the deal is really good, and it immediately solves a lot of these problems in Georgia if you expand Medicaid. You draw down a ton of federal funding that's going to go directly to healthcare providers to help keep these hospitals open across the state, and it's going to cover more people. So when you look at it from from that side of things, um, it makes a lot of sense. Now, state legislators and and Governor Deals made the point as well that, well, you know, what if that federal match rate goes down over time and eventually, you know, we can't afford it because Georgia uh, constitutionally can't run deficits. We have to fund our budget every year. You know, that means that we'll have to uh, have cuts in other places. So, you know, if if there's another recession... Medicaid rolls go up while revenue goes down. We're going to have to cut K-12 education, higher ed, transportation, you know, basic government services. Um, So they don't want to put themselves in that position. So that is a competing, you know, interest that state legislators have to deal with. The other piece of this that, you know, factors in is that if you're a state legislator, you know, do you care about federal deficits? And that's something that some do and some don't. Um, some Republican state legislators would say, well, you know, I don't want to expand Medicaid because I know that that money is, is, is borrowed money. That's federal deficit spending um, through the entitlement program that even if it covers more people, you know, I don't want to be part of the problem of these um, out-of-control federal deficits and debts. So they, some of them take that angle, and others would say, 
you know, well, I don't want to send my tax money to Massachusetts for them to cover their, their, their Medicaid population. We should go ahead and do this now. So you do have these conversations going on, or at least they were going on until uh, the last few weeks when the AHCA was revived. Um, but, you know, it's, it's two very different, you know, outlooks and, and perspectives for what a state legislator in Georgia would want to, would want to care about. If, you, if you're a state legislator who is from a rural part of the state or is from a part of the state where one of these hospitals have closed, you have a very different perspective than a state legislator from a wealthy part of Metro Atlanta that has multiple options, um, you know, for good quality health care and the majority of your constituents have employer-sponsored insurance. Yeah, and I'd like to dig into a little bit about employer-sponsored insurance. I think this is something that you know a lot better than me. Um, I'd really just be interested in your take on what are sort of like the primary issues in employer-sponsored insurance right now. I know you know the Georgia Chamber works directly with businesses in the state, and providing health insurance as a benefit is a is a big part of. It's a big expense for business. It's a big part of how they attract employees. Um, so what are some of the challenges that you see in employer-sponsored insurance? And is the work, is the chamber doing any kind of work to you know try to work on improving those problems? Yeah, so you know, as I said earlier, the Affordable Care Act has sort of become the boogeyman for any, any problem with insurance um, in any market ever, anywhere. And, you know, it, it's... It's unfortunate that it, it's, it's come to that. It's become so polarized and so politicized that it's hard to have a conversation about healthcare costs and healthcare cost containment without someone immediately resorting to, oh, well, this is because of Obamacare. You know, I lost my insurance because of Obamacare, or my premiums went up because of Obamacare. So um, I pulled some, uh, some data from the Kaiser Family Foundation, and they do a, an annual um, study asking employers, um, you know, what's going on with your health insurance to just sort of give some numbers on that. And when you look at those, you see that over time, you know, over the last 10 years specifically, this is pre-ACA and post-ACA, um, costs are on a pretty much a pretty standard uh, upward trend. So employers are increasingly um, having to contribute more to pay the cost of employ of their of their employees' insurance, and employees are also increasingly paying more um, as a share of that premium, or just as a, an outright uh, contribution increase. Um, there also are have been a lot of uh, shift towards high deductible health plans um, and HSAs, and that's something that you know we've advocated for in in our suggestions for what a Medicaid expansion plan in Georgia could look like is actually moving towards, you know, an HSA type program purely because that's what private health insurance increasingly looks like. Um, it's just the, the, the way the market is moving um, is that more workers are in, in these high deductible health plans with an HSA component. So I think you'll continue to see that increase um, in, in, in practice and, and in, you know, more employers doing that, especially smaller employers um, that's the only way that they've been able to keep health costs manageable is moving towards these high deductible health plans. And it's something that, you know, five to 10 years ago, a lot of people shied away from and, and, you know, didn't like the idea of a high deductible health plan, but it seems like now the, you know, the equilibrium point for what employees 
are are willing to pay out of a monthly premium has crossed over to where it said, okay, the monthly premiums are now so high that I'm willing to uh, to move into this high deductible plan, knowing that I'm going to be paying for a lot of this, you know, a lot of costs out of pocket um, before any of the stuff kicks in. So it's more of a, a move towards, you know, a catastrophic, uh, you know, catastrophic coverage type of plan, which, you know, for better or worse, that seems like the way the health insurance in the country is moving on this side of things is, you know, you, you have to have a lot of out-of-pocket expenses and you have to pay a larger portion of your income um, to, for, to, to guarantee that you'll not be subject to these, these you know, huge astronomical costs if something very bad happens. And is this, I've always wondered this question, there was a lot of concern when the Affordable Care Act was passed that it would lead to this massive exit of employers wanting to provide health insurance. It didn't really end up that way. It's actually part of why CBO's score was a little off on the insured numbers is because employers did you know, generally not offload their employees to the ACA marketplace. But is this, do you get any sense of, is this something employers want to do? Would there be value to getting out of this market or is it, is it too valuable of a, of a benefit to, you know, attract high quality employees? Yeah, I think this is a, an interesting behavioral economics, uh, you know, experiment here. Um, yeah, so like you said, the CBO scores were partially off because fewer employers decided to send their um, employees to the exchanges. Um, it's become a recruiting tool, especially for larger employers that have the ability to, to offer good benefits. Um, you know, these, the health insurance benefits are not taxed, which that's a, a different debate that, that, you know, people can have. So in many cases, employer plans have very generous benefits, and it's a way to recruit talent, um, and, and it's a benefit that comes in tax-free. So it, it's definitely something that employers, large and small, want to offer. Um, I think some of the political rhetoric and, and polarization because of the Affordable Care Act has maybe even led employers to, to make what we might dub irrational decisions in order to stay um, in the employer-sponsored health insurance game. Um, so it's an interesting, you know, result that the economists maybe couldn't have foreseen because it, the, the Obamacare, you know, rhetoric became so toxic that a lot of people said, well, you know, those Obamacare costs are out of control. We're going to do everything we can to make sure that our employees don't have to deal with that. Um, and, and whether that's true or not, it has led to some of these, uh, some of the market issues on the exchanges. Another way that I'm just sort of vaguely familiar with that employers are trying to deal with cost is to to increase opportunities to to make their employees healthier, to help with employee wellness plans or or strategies that would, you know, help keep their employees healthier, both, you know, from a productivity perspective um, and then and also as a recruiting tool. Do you have any sense of of how those wellness programs are going and is it an effective strategy for employers? Are they finding? Yes. I mean, pretty much every employer, you know, mid medium to large size employer is, uh, is interested in doing something like that. There are a lot of wellness programs that are tied in with, you know, your insurance plans now, um, you know, companies are, are now, uh, giving employees free Fitbits 
and you know they get their 10,000 steps and uh, if they do certain activities they're eligible for uh, you know different prizes Starbucks gift cards um, you know putting some money into your HSAs all kinds of things like that that are just sort of you know attempts to gain uh, better health outcomes by instituting healthy behaviors so it is something that employers are very interested in um, there's not been a ton of good studies on outside. Of, there's there's some studies on the academic side, but I don't know that it's trickled down all the way to you know your sort of your rank and file HR benefits managers as to whether or not these programs work. Um, I know some you know health economists at University of Georgia studied it, and and they said that you know just giving uh, your employees a reimbursement for a gym membership doesn't work. Because for the most part, all it does is it just gives your employees who are already going to the gym an extra $50 a month. Um, it didn't actually lead to any increased health outcomes because the people who weren't already going to the gym didn't start going just because you were giving them $50. Um, so, you know, it's limited in, in its effect. It's a pretty small piece of it. But in any in any situation, even if you can get these small two to five percent returns, employers are interested in pursuing it. One piece of it that uh, that came out, um, I think, two years ago, uh, was a limit on what employers could mandate as part of these, uh, you know, reductions in healthcare costs. So the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission actually ruled that you couldn't require employees to uh, participate in these programs in order to get these HSA deductions or, um, you know, reductions in health costs. And some of that came from the fact that, you know, uh, physically disabled employees or employees that had certain limitations on their ability to participate were being unfairly treated. And that just because you are, uh, you know, maybe in a wheelchair and you can't get, you know, you you literally can't get your steps in on your Fitbit. That shouldn't require. That shouldn't allow an employer to uh, charge you more for your health insurance um, premiums. So there's been some some regulations some regulations on that, and a lot of employers have had to adapt to that in the last year and a half and, and sort of readjust uh, their wellness programs in light of that um, regulation. Um, anything else on employer plans that you're thinking about? No, it's a uh, it's it's you know, the place that the vast majority of Americans get their health insurance from. Um, so you'll see, like I mentioned earlier, those tax-free benefits uh, as, as, as a priority from the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and as something that employers overall really like the ability to do. Um, some eco- a lot of economists, you know, center-right economists, center-left economists, you know, across the board think that employer-sponsored health insurance should be taxed just like income. Um, there's some pretty interesting arguments that it leads to overconsumption and that it leads to, um, you know, benefits being way more advanced than they need to be, and those costs can add up. Um, but as for now, it, it appears to be a, a topic that no one is seriously considering changing. Um, but the tax-free, the tax-free status of health insurance benefits... Um, are probably here to stay for the near future. 
Yeah, I think politically, if you if you paid attention to what happened to Democrats after the Affordable Care Act, the the whole idea of disruption in your health care was something that was not very defensible politically. And if you you know if you change that policy for employers, uh, you're definitely looking at a much bigger group of people who would see some sort of disruption in their health care, even if it ended up being a net positive in the end. Uh, change is always really hard in these things. Um, just to to wrap it up with some politics, I, I think this has been one of our more wonky episodes. So if you stayed with us this far, uh, we'll we'll close it off with some politics of the AHCA. Um, so the a lot a lot of people on the left were basically furious when when the AHCA passed the House. Um, there was a lot of you know disbelief at how could Republicans support a proposal that so clearly hurt so many people. It seemed politically dumb because it hurt people that are, you know, typically Republican voters, older people. Um, and one of the things that I think, at least in, in my, from my understanding, helps me sort of figure out what the incentives are for Republicans politically as they, as they consider this legislation is that I don't know that the AHCA was actually a, an attempt to solve a health policy problem. I think if you, um, you know, put, Republicans in control in 2009 after the 2008 election and sort of, you know, when healthcare was on the top of the agenda for the Obama administration, if Republicans had had the keys at that point, I don't think this is what they would have come up with. I think the politics of wanting to, you know, campaigning on and wanting to repeal and replace Obamacare for seven years has created a political problem for Republicans, particularly in the House. Um, and that this really was an attempt to solve a political problem in the short term by at least you know passing something that could allow them to somewhat credibly claim that they had repealed and replaced Obamacare. Um, what do you think of the politics of this, and, and do you think that's a better explanation for this policy, or do you think that this is maybe is what they actually wanted? No, I think that's exactly it. Um, and, and most of the conservative healthcare policy analysts um, that I follow on Twitter and try to read, you know, they originally described the AHCA as sort of a Frankenstein approach. And you can see that in the, the, the people who opposed it, that you had the, the far-right uh, Freedom Caucus members opposing it, and you had the, the very moderate Tuesday group members opposing it that are in these competitive districts won by Hillary Clinton. Um, both of them, you know, neither of those groups like the, the bill, there was plenty of arm twisting that went around to, you know, to, to, to get the ball across the finish line. Um, but I don't think anybody is excited about it. I, I was texting with one of my friends who works on the Hill and I described it as the, you know, the vote as they were in conference discussing it, um, last week, it had to be about the same way that general Longstreet felt on day three of Gettysburg, knowing that it was a bad idea and knowing that they were putting their troops in danger and that the likelihood of success wasn't good, but that there weren't very many good options left. And they had sort of committed um, at that point to, to push as hard as they could, and it, you know, it didn't work out well. So, you know, the House operates on a two-year, or, you know, on basically on a one-year political uh, time frame, and they're already thinking about 2018. Um Different members are thinking about their election in different ways. The conservative members of the Republican caucus are 
uh, thinking about, am I going to get a primary from the right? Someone who is mad at me for not repealing and replacing the, a the ACA? The members who are more towards the center and more vulnerable um, in the districts that look a lot more like Georgia 6 than Georgia 9 or Georgia uh, 14. The ones that look are, that are a little more, you know, moderate or highly educated districts, they're thinking about, okay, am I going to face a general election opponent? So everyone's thinking about this from a, from a political perspective, and what is this going to mean for the next election in 2018? And, you know, we have a real quick uh, test in Georgia in the next month to figure out how this is going to play. Um, you know, candidates matter, incumbents do have an advantage, but um, it's possible that we could see the, the inverse of the 2010 election as a result of this, which even if the AHCA doesn't become law, even if it doesn't get through the Senate, this still will be something that um, conservative Republicans run on uh, in 2018, saying that they voted to repeal Obamacare, and uh, Democrats who are challenging Republicans in, in some of these swing districts are going to run on and say, you know, this Republican voted to kick uh, this many million people off of health care. Yeah, and I, th I think this is a really tough political problem for the Republicans. I um, I had originally entered this debate in January thinking that it was such a bad set of choices that it might be best for Paul Ryan to put up some kind of Frankenstein bill, let it fail, and then just try to pretend that this whole thing never happened, um, and then try to move on to other agenda items that you might be able to run on in the midterms. Um, from the from at least knowing how things went for Democrats post ACA, your the calculation that you face changes a lot when you're the party in power versus when you're the opposition party, um, and and I think that they are, you know, they are probably they might have uh, pleased some of the Republicans on the right that might save a few of these sitting members from primary challenges, but when it comes down to it in the midterms and the generals, I think. The, the people who are more likely to come out and vote in a general versus a primary are going to say, well, here's a problem. You said you would fix it. Donald Trump said he would fix it when he ran. So did a lot of these members of Congress. And we're here and it's not fixed. My health care is not better. Um, and I think that's going to be the question that they have to answer. Um, and and this, this bill makes it a really difficult one for at least the House members to answer. Yeah, there's nothing in here that I can see from my perspective that um – is going to result in decreased healthcare premiums before the 2018 elections. And, uh, you know, a lot of this stuff is marketing and a lot of this stuff is spin and it's how you sell it. And, you know, there's things that can happen between now and November of 2018. But um, for people who ran on the idea that they're going to make healthcare cheaper by repealing the Affordable Care Act, um, you know, good luck because. I don't see how this is going to lead to that. And a lot of it has nothing to do with, you know, the differences between the ACA and the AHCA. Um, there are just a lot of, you know, systemic problems within healthcare. We ask for a lot. We want a lot from our healthcare system. We want expensive pharmaceutical products. We want, you know, the highest quality care. And it's an expensive thing to deliver. And, you know, we want it all. And we don't want to pay for it. Um, which leads to people being unhappy with their health care. So that's just going to be a challenge for anyone to fix. Um, the Republicans are going to have to work this out in the Senate now. It, it, 
as of this point, it doesn't look like this version of the AHCA can pass the Senate um, because you have a lot of senators from Medicaid expansion states that, that hate the rollback. Um, so that piece is going to be interesting to watch that play out um, and to figure out where the deals get cut, um, you know, where the moderate Republicans go, especially the ones that are up for re-election in 2018. So there's a lot of, uh, a lot of issues that are going to play into this, and we'll see how it turns out. Yeah, there's a lot to look forward to. Uh, but I think on that, that's a good note to uh, wrap up on. And uh, thank you so much for coming on the show and uh, come back and join us anytime. Awesome. We can come back and talk education some other time. Yeah, definitely. That's one that we're looking into also that uh, is hopefully, at least from my perspective, hopefully going to get some action next year. So uh, hopefully we'll get to talk about that one soon. All right. Thanks, Kyle. That's our show for the week. If you like what you heard, you can share the show with a friend and go over to iTunes and give us a rating and a review. It really helps other people find our show. Our interns this week are Alana Pierce and Courtney Clark, and we will talk to you next week. Take care, y'all.